we're doing this. This is what did you do? And this is D. What did we do? Well, we recorded a podcast. Well, no, no, I'm just saying, name. this is what did you do? You know what? <laughs> did I get you? I got you. I'm so smart. I <laughs> <laughs> no. So, yeah, I am Charnel, and this is what did you do? I guess we should start off with the whole lo siento, you know, I'm sorry. I can't translate it any other way because those are the only two ways I know how to say I'm sorry. Oh, I'm doing background mm-hmm. music. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it more than just your audio. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Justin Bieber, see me on these karaoke streets. But um, no, sorry for being away so long. A lot has happened um, in the last five months. Um, Beyonce released an album. No, it took up a lot of my time. <laughs> Depression came and kickboxed me too. So there's just, and on top of that, like me and D, now we talked about this off mic, but we are PCPs, not the drug, but we are parents, we're creatives, and we are professionals, which means that those two, those two P's are the most important to us. Obviously, we want to make sure we show up in all the parts of our lives that, that feed us literally and figuratively. Um, and we want to make sure that we also, try to find time for all of you. And so we've decided to switch to a season structure. Yes. Um, that would make us feel less overwhelmed. Um, it'd be less pressure for both of us. Um, like D does a lot. I do a lot. So what it's going to look like is on February 7th, we are starting with season two, right? The whole first five years with season one. You're welcome. You have 60 episodes, right? <laughs> when has shows ever done that? But, <laughs> but, um, season, season two will start February 7th. And the way it's going to work is there's going to be five episodes and then a little mini break mid season. Um, and then another five episodes and then a break. So usually like a six to eight week break. Um, and so what you'll see is our first mini break will be around April 4th. Um, and then our season, like finale, whatever, will be like June, uh, June 13th. And then the entire summer, you won't hear from us via audio uploaded to Apple podcasts and SoundCloud and all that. Um, because we'll be enjoying our families in the nice weather. Um, we'll come back in August and we'll be taking a mini break, I believe in October. And then for the holidays, we'll be off for like those six weeks. And so it should work. It should be able to give us a balance where we can have some downtime enjoy ourselves, find times of vacation, find time to decompress, enjoy our loved ones, and still give back uh, to you all the things that you like. I think it works, D. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. And, you know, those much-needed self-care breaks is something that I need as a social worker, too. The burnout is real, so. Burnout is so real. Like, we, me and D are, we both work in professions that demand a lot of us emotionally and mentally and sometimes physically. Right? And these cases um, demand a lot of us emotionally, too. Always. <laughs> and parenting does the same. So we are, like, D's a social worker. I work as a school counselor at a high school. And so, like, the people we, the people that we work with need us. And the people that we care for and raise need us. And so, we want to make sure that we're giving ourselves time to to really, again, just decompress and convalesce and bounce back and still give you quality stuff. And so we believe going forward, this is going to be a good thing. A really good thing. Last part of all this weird little housekeeping piece we're doing is that there's a lot of newbies who have shown up in the last, like, five months. Hi, new people. Um, hola. Um, welcome. Was it Ben Viano? No, bienvenida. Well, I think that might be come along. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a Spanish teacher. But we want to introduce ourselves a little bit. Again, my name is Charnel. 
as far as background goes, like on paper, I guess, like degrees, criminology, you know, human services, forensic psychology last year. Uh, I mentioned in the last podcast, like I got a master's um, in criminal justice and human security for fun. Honestly, like, I don't know why <laughs> I went back. Okay. I don't know why I went back. Like after I was done, I was like, why did I do that to myself? Um, but my entire adult life, I really dedicated to working with teens um, who are system affected. So that's criminal justice system. That's foster care system. Um, kids from disadvantaged communities. Uh, in my entire background, like I'm the child of an addict. My mom was addicted to opioids growing up, you know, grew up poor. Um, a lot of mental health issues going throughout my family, i.e., hence, you know, depression for me is a thing. Um, but when we talk about these things and when I talk about these things specifically, I'm coming from a place of lived experiences, a place of like felt emotion, observation, <laughs> and this very cerebral educational standpoint and professionalism. So, um, these aren't just, you know, people in cases. These are things that continue to happen. These little things that create um, these situations and these awful uh, outcomes are things that still happen today. And so our goal is to destigmatize some of the things that keep people from getting the help they need and preventing um, these awful things from happening. But D, who are you? I don't know who I am. Am I even D? Well, not really, because that is not my government That's name. That's not your real name. <laughs> <laughs> but you might find my government name if you follow me on social media. But here I go by D. Um, I am a social worker. I've been working in human services for 16 years, mostly with adults. Um, so I did adult mental health, um, addiction. I've done criminal justice system, like, you know, adults who are involved in the criminal justice system. And um, I actually do child welfare. Um, so that's where I'm currently at, child welfare. I have my bachelor's in social work, so I've done a lot with the little degrees I have. I don't have multiple grad degrees like uh, Charnel does, but, you know. <laughs> but we've for done, fun. <laughs> for fun. But we've done the damn thing with what I have. Um, so that's where I've come. And again, I've seen a lot and I've uh, experienced a lot. As far as my background, um, I am a first generation. My parents are immigrants from Haiti. Sac passé to all my Haitians. Um, so that comes with its own traumas because I grew up in the suburbs. And when you're an immigrant that grew up around, you know, white people and that you go through your own experiences, trying to marry the two of being American and also keeping up your culture. So, um, yeah, that's, I've gone through my own traumas. And like I've said in the past, I probably downgrade my traumas. Um, but you know, that causes your own type of issues like anxiety and that pressure to perform well. Um, <laughs> Especially when your parents sacrifice everything to come to this country. No big deal. <laughs> uh, just left off the traumas. Um, other than that, I am married. I am a stepmother. I am trying to conceive. So I'm in that infertility battle and fertility battle that so many women go through. So we are dealing with that. Um, I'm a homeowner and a business owner. I, on the, I guess it's like my hobby slash also a business. Um, make candles because self-care is important to me, especially because I am often burnt out. That's my middle name. So I have my candles I made and sell to you guys at uh, louisandlot.com. That was just a seamless plug. And that's it. <laughs> but again, this is who we are. Like the season structure is going to work, especially for me. Like I, I coach my girls basketball team at my school. And so like my days are very long. <laughs> so we're just happy to be to be back 
um, sharing ourselves with you again. And community was the most important part of this, this creative endeavor anyway. So we are happy to be back. Um, this is episode 60. We only, again, only took us five years to get here. Just five. Um, whatever we again we're pcps bruh and plus we've done so, a lot in those five years we've come a long way uh, yeah, personal girl if you knew if you knew us on michelle blair you don't deserve us at no i'm joking <laughs> but there <laughs> but no so last we left off with fred and rose we went through their upbringing we went through what brought them together the awful things that that happened to them that you, they used as glue for their relationship um and some of the context of culture around their lives and so what we're picking up is these two have decided the best thing for them is to get married and you know the best thing what's the what's the childhood nursery rhyme thing comes the baby in the baby carriage right. i think right yeah, so this is very much very much so what they fall into so if d if you want to take us into where where we left these two at yeah it's all you fam so they decide to get married which for better or for worse and mostly for worse they do um, shortly after their marriage, they get, well, they're already pregnant. So shortly after their marriage, they give birth or Rose gives birth to May June, which I truly hate that name. What a passion. Cause I feel like they were trying to do the May June July, but icky parents, icky names. No offense for anything. It's not May's, it's not May's fault. <laughs> no, right, no, I'm not blaming May at all. This is her parents' fault, but you know, there are probably other people with May June names. So I'm, I'm sorry. Um, your parents did that. But anyways, they shortly after she gives birth, Rose decides to really ramp up her prostitution business. So in the last episode, we talk about how they kind of do this bed and breakfast thing is the best way to describe it. Like they take in lodgers um, and to help pay for the household. So doing this, um, they create, I guess, uh, Rose's special room, her room, where she also... um, prostitutes and she will take in some of these lodgers as well as some of the locals and uh they run that business in their home as well um they use a local magazine to advertise like old school you know what what do they call the old school like ads in the magazines the section classifieds classifieds so they use the classifieds to um you know get solicitors for rose and they really focus on the west indian population so we're talking about black men yeah so <laughs> i i don't mean to laugh at the black men joke but last year uh well technically but I meant to say it last was episode, last year <laughs> right we mentioned um the the not even odd racism is not odd it's not like un it's not unnormal it's not like we don't experience it or see it happen every day but the very strong racial like context around rose having a mixed race baby already right she had had a baby with an with an indian asian asian indian um cab driver i believe am i right Yes. and so there was already uh an issue of people lying having to lie to cover it up you know, like, oh, well, my grandmama was half black or something, and that's why her skin tone is kind of, you know, right. something like, like they were doing these things. And so when we're, when we're talking about this brothel and we're seeing these black men come in and out, like, you have to understand these are very irresponsible people. Like, they are not, there's no protection and contraception happening. Like, right. and so down the line, this is going to cause issues for Rose's children specifically. But also in this brothel context, like it wasn't always for money. 
Right. Like, this was is one of these things where Rose's room was specifically to like to to have some kind of sexual gratification for a lot of times Fred, mm-hmm. right? Would be watching. Uh, there's peepholes in Rose's room. There was a baby monitor in Rose. It's just like and listen and hear things. Right. Um, but as you'll see, like they keep having children, right. and the cost of feeding kids go is is high. <laughs> All right. any parent can say that's that's true, especially with inflation. Right. So like they start charging, right? And they start putting out those those ads, and it's like, hey, we're looking for you know West Indian males. We're looking for well in like well endowed West Indian, you know. Right. Because this is what they're looking for. This isn't just something that they're doing. This is something that they're also recording. Right. right? Yeah. So. So they're recording, um, not to yuck on anyone's jam, but there was a lot of bondage, S&M, um, becomes three ways. Uh, Rose did some of these things with women as well. Um, she would assault the women with dildos or use increasingly larger dildos, um, even if the woman declined and she would taunt them like you're not woman enough to take it. So this thing escalates. So this isn't just for money. Like you said, this is for pleasure. And they both take pleasure seeing people suffer during these acts. So, and like sexual violence is one of those precursors. If you are um, repeated, right. Sexually violent behavior is one of those warning signs of, what a person could be capable of, i.e. like extreme, like other types of violence and or murder, right? Yeah. We've talked about and different so, cases where it starts off like this. Because mm-hmm. what ends up happening is there's a lot of times, and I, I, I learned this when I was doing things for fun, right, in, in school, but a lot of times what we, when we think about crime, we think of like people being incredibly sick and we use the word crazy a lot. But a lot of times, like, there are things that people do that they use to just, they justify things with very simple means, right? Well, I got, I did this and they lived. I did this and it was okay because they chose to be here. They knew what this was going to be because there was no secrets. They saw the chains. They saw, you know, there's all these things that happen that allow you to escalate your behavior because you've already justified the precursor. You've already justified the precedent, right? And so for them, like, this didn't just end um, with them just harming people, obviously, if this is happening in their home, it's the things that are also happening to their kids, right? right? Where, where they're videotaping these things. They're not just videotaping them from their own pleasure. Like, they are showing these things to their children. So these things are bleeding over. And the justification, like the word we used, you know, earlier is that, well, they're, they're growing up and they need to learn these things. Right. You know, and, and they're getting old enough to like conceive. So they need to make sure that this, they know what conception looks like. And what they're learning is that we talk about kids not being sexual, but like, or sexualized. What they're learning is that sex looks like this. Right. And it's a dangerous thing. So it's not just them getting their own rocks off, but it's them causing damage early on for their little ones too. Right. When you hear back from their children later on, you, you hear them talk about how they try to normalize a lot of the actions. But if you think of back to Fred and Rosemary's younger years, a lot of the stuff was normalized. And like, let me give you an example. So, um, by 1977, Rose is continuing her prostitution, right? Um, remember Rose's father did not like Fred. They weren't fans. No one came to this wedding, really. Um, but he just he decides he kind of sees what's going on and the father and starts to respect Fred and 
it's becomes to the point where they open a cafe together. So we're talking about Fred and Rose's former abuser, which is her father. When he discovers really the full length of the prostitution, he would go and visit Rose's room and have sex with his daughter as well, as he used to when they, you know, she was younger. So like, this is the kind of information that they received and they continue to receive from their parents. And then they try to pass that along to their kids. To kind of not to reiterate, like this is why when we talk about the background of, of the people in these cases, like it is important to know, like these things happen and little things and these things build. They always snowball. These things aren't just happening in vacuums all the time where like this person decides I'm going to kill eight people. You know, it does happen like that sometimes where people's sense of reality is warped due to mental health or mental illness. But like a lot of times people who will hurt people have no idea what has caused them to get to that way of thinking when they haven't gotten the therapy, they haven't gotten the the help they needed, the support they needed. And so these little things happen in houses where kids are abused, neglected, used, um, transacted sometimes, you know, and they become things because of that. They they treat people certain ways because they've been treated a certain way. Well, they're property because I was treated as property. I was traded. Well, this if I'm value, if I'm a commodity, so are you. You know, so we have to make sure we are while making people or holding people accountable that we're actually talking about again, how did we get here? Right. Which is why, you know, the first part was background. So you know, in speaking about the children, um, by 1983, she had eight kids. She had given birth to eight kids. Um, they're, they're suspecting three to five were by clients. Um, and, you know, they had to explain, like, why are some of these kids much darker and some of these kids aren't? So, like Charnel says, he begins to use that great-grandmother was black thing, and that's how they present to the world. So, you have eight kids underneath these roofs so and they're all being subjected to sex and um, inappropriate sexual behavior i should say furthermore they are also being physically abused so one of the things that went around in this household you have eight kids i guess you are expected somewhat to do chores as a kid but she had them do numerous daily chores they're not allowed to socialize with the outside again because, of course, these are things that are going on in a house that are abnormal. You don't want them going out in public, going to friends, talking about things that are going on in the house when the other friend is like, oh, that doesn't happen in my house. So they're trying to normalize what's going on in the house. They won't want to like subject them to the outside world to make them realize that, hey, this is not normal. Um, so they had very strict rules to follow. And if they did not follow these rules... And these household chores, Rose would often, like, beat the children, inflict pain on the children. Um, Rose is pretty much known for the violence in the house and that went on in the house. She even acted towards Fred on, like, one occasion where Rose was chasing Fred with a knife. Um, He was able to run and close the door, but he slammed the door shut on her finger. It was, like, a mess. Um, and then she just calmly said when she realized her finger was injured, oh, you have to take me to the hospital now. So, like, she was okay with violence and, like, barely reacted to it. Like, it was amazing. 
But it also speaks to her childhood and what she experienced. So, but it, it's a it's a strange place for for children to be in. It's a strange place for anyone to to exist in and expect them to come out on top or to come out well adjusted or you know or okay. And I think where where it comes in again, like D said, is the first step of abuse. A lot of times um is isolation you know they need you need to believe that because there's other pieces to this like emotional abuse too is that nobody else is going to love you or protect you everyone else is going to harm you you don't need to go over and have friends because those friends don't like you and like d said the problem is is that if you go to someone else's house and i can speak to this as a person you go somewhere and you're like wait a minute y'all don't do this like you your mom doesn't disappear for two to three days at a time yep but that's what happens when you when you meet other people. And a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, a lot of us don't learn our own social ills unless we go to work or go to college where you realize, wait a minute. And someone lets you know, like, that's not how you do that or that's not how you're supposed to behave. So it is a it's a hard thing for these kids to live through um, watching their parents enact violence on each other. And these are the people that are supposed to love you. Right. So imagine what they're telling them about strangers and what they could do to you if you're not careful. So it is, it's a terrible, terrible, I know words. It is a terror, terrifying um, space to be in. Imagine at like five years old, eight years old, 12 years old, like, oof. Furthermore, it wasn't just, you know, the children witnessing um, sexual things, sexual inappropriateness at a young age. It became rape um, and sexual assault towards their own children. So their first target, I feel, was, like, their eight-year-old daughter. Uh, She was eight at the time. It was, like, 1972. Um, She was taken to the cellar, was stripped naked, bound to a mattress, gagged, and Fred raped her while Rose watched and encouraged it. So this is an eight-year-old daughter. Um, Eventually, this transformed into, you know, when... Anne Marie was older, her prostituting with her mother, going down into bars with her mother, um, and soliciting men. And um, Rose was always there to make sure her daughter never told the men her actual age because she was like 13. So, you know, she had to make sure that Anne Marie wasn't going to tell the men their age. So she was there watching this all happen from age like 13 to 16, just her prostituting with her daughter. So, I mean, they also targeted the kids, not just with showing them stuff, but they did sexually assault the children as well. So, yeah. No, as I was saying, despite all this, so we have the physical abuse, we have the sexual abuse, you know, we do have hospital visits, you know, and... 31 trips to the emergency room and nothing happened because Rose was always there with an excuse. But also, no one was looking deeper into these things. Um, Chanel have, and I always talk about the 1970s being a wild time. In general, people were really minding their business and they were not saying anything. You know, they, teachers would notice these kids um, with different injuries, like different, you know, community professionals that did have access to the kid noticed but nothing was being reported and they got away with a lot 
Yeah, and I think that one of the things you have to acknowledge. Seventies was the fucking wild west. Like, you know how much fuck? I love the se- I can't stand the seventies. It was it was a wild time to be alive in the seventies, and a lot of our cases. Um, they move through the 70s, start in the 70s, or happen exclusively in the 70s. And, I mean, there's a lot of things happening um, in the 70s that we all need to be, like, cognizant of. Uh, like, there's a lot, like, musically, you know, and we're talking about America like this isn't, you know, there. But, like, we're, when we're talking about, like, music, uh, political culture... We're talking about just culture in general, like in across the world, this whole free love thing was happening. Environmental movements were happening, women's rights and gay rights. Like all these things were happening all across the world. Conversations were happening. Wars were starting to happen. Wars were, their wars were ending. You know, the seventies were weird. And so everyone had this weird insulation, like idealism about them where as long as I'm okay and my life makes right. sense, I'm not going to worry about anybody else's. And so. <laughs> You see a lot of excuses getting made in the 70s for things. Like, for instance, we're talking about, like, when they're going to the hospital visits, we had their daughters going into the hospital with injuries to, like, their genitals. And they're like, oh, well, they that was a, they had an accident on their bicycle. Um, there's puncture wounds on their feet. And they're like, where did, they, this, where did this come from? You know, like, there's questions where, like, okay, well, that excuse checks out for me. They Oh, they stepped on pins. That makes sense. You know, all these bruises, that makes sense. Or we oh, talk yeah. about, uh, was it Dean Coral right. and all these yeah. kids where it's like, well, you know, they just ran away to get a job. Like, what? Like, I it's mean, it's like in the 70s, things were just happening. And these was were, okay. Until later on. I want to say sense. in the 90s, early 90s, that became more of a thing. I think up until then, maybe 80s, but I think up until then, there was a lot going on, but child welfare wasn't one of them. I mean, even. Go- <laughs> Well, I think that, I know. I was gonna say, just even car seats in general lo- weren't really right. popularized till like late eighties. Like the expectation for kids to have car seats, like no one was looking at the safety standards for kids and seatbelts and you know stuff like that. So a lot went down, and I just think there wasn't space or people weren't thinking about children at that point. No, you're absolutely right, and I think a lot of the issue too was that there was. There was no, like, cohesion and connectivity like there is nowadays, right? Where if something happened at school and then something you something happened at home and you went to the hospital and then a teacher noticed something the next day, at some point someone's going to call and connect dots, right? Whereas in the 70s and specifically, so again, talking about England specifically and how they've, they have separated themselves as far as, like, political and uh, policing practices – like, there was no communication happening just like in America. Like, it just wasn't working in the same way. And so kids were allowed, were able, allowed, kids were left to be abused. They were left with parents who didn't care about their safety. Um, again, and like you said, safety standards, people were riding down, like, rusted metal slides in the 70s. It was, it was a wild time to be alive. And we don't have to stay here too long. But again, like, it's just that kind of culture that people were existing in, where if you had an excuse, you know, and it was, it, you, people could see it. If even if you bend and squint and close one eye to see it, it would work. Even to the point where, like, having an ectopic pregnancy and, like, going to the hospital and having your life be on the line and being able to just blame it on some neighborhood kid and not the father who's assaulting his daughter, you know. So 
there's 31 visits to the hospital and nobody was like, why are these kids so prone to injury? <sighs> it's just a frustrating thing to think about. Again, it's terrifying space for children to exist in. And again, even in, even then we talk about things escalating in the home. They also, if they're treating their children like this, then do we know that right. the escalation is and going to come been, um, to people they don't claim to no care No one was the wiser. So we talk about how by 1983, they have eight kids and she's given birth to eight kids. But what we don't talk about and mention is that in that time, they were <laughs> doing a lot. And just for like perspective, 80s is not that long ago. Um, I was born in 86 and it just dawned on me as Chanel was talking, like I was born in, I'm, I'm dusty, but it's not, I'm not that oh. dusty. And so a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these kids are still, you know, alive, um, around some of them, their children are around and we'll get to that at the end. So just make sure you guys realize this is not, I mean, some of the, the younger generations, like, ugh, 70s, long time, but a lot of these people are still alive. So, <laughs> right. Your grandmothers were born in the seven. Like it's like one of those. Like a lot of these teenagers. Like I work in a school. And I look <laughs> at these parents and these parents. I'm like 1989. <laughs> Your mom was born in 89, and so like their grandparents are born in 68, so 70. Like, this this is not a long time kids. ago. But in 1972, you know, stuff is going down already with other people and so they come across you know while i think driving um they come across a girl named caroline owens and she is a troubled kid i would say um she didn't like her stepfather she didn't like her home life and she just would run away hitchhike um you know go visit her boyfriend um but she was kind of looking for a way out of her situation and unfortunately she comes across rose and fred um while she was hitchhiking now rose and fred you know they have a good amount of kids at this time it wasn't even the the lot of them because she they're still having kids um but in 1972 they realize they probably need some help and they decide to t- strike a deal with caroline to have her be a nanny a living nanny um, and Caroline saw this as an opportunity to get out of her situation, get out of home. So she moved in with Rose and Fred Ress, and she shared a room with Anne-Marie. Now, keep in mind, already at this time, Anne-Marie was, she, I think, yeah, this is a, shortly before or after they started raping Anne-Marie. So she's already going through her own stuff. And, you know... Caroline said she was, you know, very withdrawn, very quiet. You know, her roommate, Anne-Marie, was just quiet. So she's working as um, a nanny, and she's seeing stuff go on inside the home. Um, She still works there. She's not moving. But then, you know, she realized they started, you know, targeting her. So they was like sexual advances. They're asking her to participate in certain things and she's not comfortable. She decides, oh, I'm going home. I'm not staying here. I quit. So she announces that she's leaving and she returns home. Now, they know that she tends to hitchhike in the same area in in London. So they want to get her back. They want to talk to her. They want to 
what Caroline thinks is makes things right. So they, they see her driving, they make a plan, but we know it's not to apologize to her. But they make a plan to purposely drive along this road looking for Caroline, and they do come across her. Now, again, like I said, Caroline is thinking, oh, they probably just want to apologize for what they've done or trying to get me involved in this and that. Um, and so she gets in the car when they ask her to. Um, she joins Rose in the backseat. Like, red flag already. Why is Rose in the backseat? Why is Rose in the backseat? But whatever. <laughs> red flag. Um, and they say they just want to have a girl's talk. Um, during this drive... They start asking her about sex again and start asking her about her sex life with a boyfriend, whatever, whatever. She realizes this is not the conversation I thought we were going to have and she tries to leave the car. Um, Fred stops the car, starts cursing out Caroline and punches her until she's unconscious. They tie her up in the cellar and they threaten her and say, okay, well... If you scream or if you say anything, we'll have our black friends come over you, over here and sexually abuse you. Um, so they use that to scare her. But despite that, she finds a way to get out through telling them that, to, well, she basically complies and says, okay, well, I'll come back and work as your nanny. Um, from there, she was like doing laundry, doing something with the laundry, and she escapes using the laundry route and goes to her mom. Her mom immediately calls the police. Um, they look into things and they're about to charge Fred. He was arrested, but Caroline decides not to testify. And I think at the end of the day, it was to her detriment that she decides not to testify because they let him off. All charges were dropped. And when she found out about this, she actually tried to commit suicide. So imagine the trauma. Well, I think that's also one of the reasons why she didn't want right. to testify because yeah. we've mentioned it before. We we're talking about yeah. like victimology here, like retelling is reliving. And in a courtroom, people don't realize that it's not just you getting on a stand and retelling your story and then getting up and sitting down. People are you asking you questions about details and that's just prosecution trying to put them away the defense is going to rip you apart and make it feel like it's your fault they will guess they will gaslight you into thinking that you chose to be there you engaged because you wanted to you should have known who they like it will it traumatizes you if you're not i mean you're staring the person who did all this stuff to you in the face like you're just right there looking at them while someone berates you about yeah what somebody right like like there's no protection there's no wall like there are cops but they could get to you like, people don't realize, but unfortunately, like I said, it's it's one of those catch-22 testifying, because then sometimes if you don't testify, that's it. And the person gets off, mm-hmm. which I think should never happen, because if there is evidence of, there should be a way that people pay consequences. But in this case, no. It's a, We go back to the it being the 70s and DNA stuff well, being fairly, you know. And so just right. because there are marks and bruises and things like that, and, you know, you go back to your mom and you say things. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove. And a lot of times in these cases back then, a lot of stuff was based on either being caught in the act, um, having something that, remember, we talked about people when you had um, wallets or IDs or shoes that belonged to someone or testimony. Someone says it was you. 
and I can describe what the inside of your house looks like. I can describe what the mole on your genitals looks like. You need testimony on in court, right, to to put these people away. And sometimes it just, if you were terrified enough and you weren't ready to face down your, your predator and your attacker and you weren't ready to be belittled and attacked by defense attorneys, it seems like not the right thing to do. So it right. is, a, again, the 70s. Right, we couldn't. There's no, there's no SVU like going in. I don't think there's and, witness protection. There's like none of that. Oh, they had a patrol car outside your house. They sometimes are safe, <laughs> but the safe houses were for this. You before, mean the guy, the guy sleeping? Right, but this is before like organized crime was like like a pertinent piece of of policing, and so like safe houses and things like that. Um, were specifically for what we would call like mob bosses and things like that when they were trying to wait, like, keep them alive until, um, until trial. Like those things weren't where they were saved for those types of people. Like for victims, you would they'd send you to your house and then they would just have a patrol car out front or have someone patrol right. your street or have you stay with another relative that so and so won't know where you live. So again, the seventies were we have to acknowledge that it was also a logistically and technologically challenged time. So. <laughs> Um, 2023 people looking back at, you know, looking back 50 years ago, it's tough. So, I mean, a couple months after this assault and everything went down, uh, they commit their first murder. So they're getting to the apex. So we're going to talk about Linda Goff. I'll let you take it over for Linda. They are running still. It's sort of a, a boarding house that they're running. It's not just a brothel. It's not just... They are having people coming to stay with them. People are, you know, people who are passing through. This is what boarding houses are. People who are, you know, coming out of prison, yada, yada, yada. And people just looking for shelter. And these two know how to identify a potential victim immediately because they were those people that they look for. For, for Linda Goff, Linda was a headstrong girl. She was self-assured. She takes, takes in a lot of the characteristics of a teenager in today's age, right? They know they they're smart. They know you know too much for their own good, so to speak. Um, and authority is annoying, and so she is one of those one of those girls who said, you know, what, my parents are annoying me. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make it on my own. I'm gonna step out and give myself a break. And so she tells her parents that, hey, I found a place. I'm gonna be gone for a while. I'll see you when I see you. And what ends up happening is they, she finds a place with the West on Cromwell Street in April of 73. Right. And so after that note, the Goffs hear nothing from Linda. Linda moves into this home and she is gone. There's no note. She says she's going to come and see them sometime, which again, it's the seventies. So if your kids, look at the laws and stuff being enforced aren't really there. Um, and so if your kid says they're going to come back, you assume that. They're going to try and make it on their own and they're not going to, they're not going to be able to do it and come back home. And so what ends up happening is that Mrs. Goff goes through her friends and, and her associates and like her, uh, Linda's friends and associates and, you know, playmates and says, Hey, like I'm looking for Linda. Where is she? And they somehow find a way to piece it back to Cromwell street, right? Maybe not the address specifically, but by the time they're able to kind of identify where she would have gone or where she said her flat, her new flat in space was, Linda had since already been killed. She had moved in and Fred and Rose, again, they do the, that kind of incremental, like, hey, don't you want to join us? 
hey, don't you want to be a part of this? You have to, or we're going to kick you out. And what ends up happening is that Linda is tortured by them. She's sexually assaulted by them. And she is dismembered and buried, you know, in the, in their yard. And so what's insane about this, and I can't remember the case that I was thinking about. What, what case was it when the when the, the guy, it was Arthur Gary Bishop who carries the little boy's body past his parents? I think so. Um, I remember this. What ends up happening is that Miss Goff comes to the door. Like, she comes knocking, right? looking for her daughter and Rose is wearing Linda's slippers and like the boldness, right? The, 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 the cojones on these people. And Ms. Goff recognizes this and she lies and says, well, Oh no, she left. She went, she moved and she, she, she went on and met a man and they went quick. She left all her stuff behind. And so, there's a whole, like, obviously you don't believe this, right? Your, your daughter, she, they know their daughter better than anybody. And they start getting other people involved, right? There's organizations on the ground that start getting involved. They're talking to people. However, they never reported her missing to the police. And again, what makes it a little bit strange for, in our ears is because in the seventies, kids did this in certain spaces. Like your kids, you would let them go because at some point, if they're at that age, well, specifically for Linda, I think, I believe she was 19, 18 when she, when she disappeared, she was 18. Like, it's okay because she is older, right? You're mature. Um, at this point, you're allowed to go missing. Like, if I decide to disappear tomorrow, I could and you can't report me missing because I might not be. You know, it's just like, I'm an adult. I'm allowed to go missing. I'm allowed to leave everyone behind. And so they couldn't really press forward and they didn't really do anything to, to look for her post that, um, we knew that she, she had attended a a school for special needs children. Um, she, we knew that she was tired of people kind of overbearing and watching over her. And so she was trying to make it on her own. But outside of that, like we knew, like, we like they knew that she couldn't do it on her own and that she was just looking to do it and so they kind of just left it where it was knowing that either my daughter is making it or that something terrible has happened to her but they had no way to prove it other than you know that she's wearing my daughter's slippers so linda goff is there first i'm sorry <clears throat> linda goff oh my voice um is is the victim where they where we see them like identifying, right? We, they, they notice these things. No one's looking for her. Um, she's the type of victim where like people might be curious as to where she is. Um, we see this in serial killers all throughout history where you know that if they went missing, there's no one rushing right away. Yeah. I mean, Linda is their first one and they, they find the target and it becomes younger women. And after Linda, there are four murders that happen after. Um, same MO. Um, now you're at 1975 where they go to Juanita Moth, who they also murder. She's 18. She's a lodger there. She was living with a family friend. Um, and she was hitchhiking. And I, I feel like it's the same MO. They see these girls who are hitchhiking. They take them in and that's it. So Juanita Moth is the next one they, um, they do. And then Fred kind of 
changes things around. So this is when things start to change because I guess the number of victims is just increasing. So he starts to concrete over the floor of the cellar. Um, he converts different places in his rooms um, just to hide things a little bit better. I think he's burying them. At, at this point, I think he's burying them in the cellar, correct? Um, they're not just simply, you know, torturing people, you know, by tying them up and poking them with hot things. Like, they have created an entire dungeon style. We talked about how bondage became a thing in Rose's room, but that was also happening in the cellar where these people were being held. And to the point where they would suspend people from ceilings, wrap their faces up, uh, you know, with tape and like put tubes up their noses so they can breathe through it, you know. And so it wasn't just simply, you know, they come down there, they do what they do to them and then they bury them. They are putting people through intensive, um, awful, you know, like gut wrenching things, assaulting them, stealing, taking away their identity, autonomy and all that. And then ultimately ending their lives and then dismembering them to make them harder to find and, har- and easier to dispose of. And so when we, as we talk about these, these, these killings, this is what they're doing to these women. They're finding these women, suspending them from the ceiling, assaulting them. Um, a lot of the times Rose um, had taken identifying as a bisexual. She would also like engage in this alone. It wasn't always Fred being there. You know, so there is, there's a lot of escalation here. There's a lot of, a lot of violent upticks that are happening. And not everything has been, you know, disclosed, right? Exactly what happened. Some of the bodies had decomposed way beyond, you know, any kind of injuries you can tell by marks and bones and things like that. Or things that Rose and Fred just haven't told people. Because Fred was a bit of a jerk when he finally got, you know, caught up. He was trying to make the police upset and frustrated, whereas Rose was a bit more, uh, relenting right so it's just an idea of like this is what they're doing to every single victim they are torturing them legitimately taking away their senses well, again they're hearing their sight um not feeding them they're star you know all these things are happening um in this cellar where it really becomes this horrific room uh for them at least for for victims for fred and rose this is this is their this is their thing um so yeah, they continue on. Um, they murder, I think, three other people after Juanita. And then, you know, all this is going on. Meanwhile, they're still targeting their own children. Mm. So um, after Anne-Marie, they started to target May, June, and Heather. Um, May, June, and Heather become victims of incest, just like their siblings. Um, they're going through it. Um, I think May, June kind of went along with it better than Heather did. Like, May, June had a more survivor mind, but this is really breaking down Heather. They also bullied Heather a little bit more because they thought she was a lesbian. So, I mean, it's funny because your mom is supposedly bisexual, but here you are presenting as a lesbian. So they really targeted her. Part of that is because she was so resistant to what was happening, you know, like they like lesbian back then still had the connotation of like being a a negative thing. I read that it was because she was reusing her father's advances that he was like, you must be a lesbian then. How could you not want to sleep with me, your father, you know? So like they had 
even if she was a lesbian, right? It could be true. Maybe, you know, but it was one of those things where she refused to see this as normal in a way, because at this point too, we, in the child's lives, some of them had made friends, some secretly and some otherwise, right? Where Heather knew this isn't okay. Um, we could talk about Steven too, right? Steven at some point Mm -hmm. ran away, you know, and ran and was staying with a friend for a while you know, without sharing way too much with them, but, you know, just wanting to be safe. And so, like, there's there's these cracks happening in this, in their, I don't know what you're going to call it, in their dome of, right. of, of abuse where people are starting to figure it out. So, I'm sorry, cut you off. Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Rose's sex life starts to become a, a talking point for the kids that are, you know, school age. And they know, because, I mean, you can only, especially if you're intimate with so many people in town it the rumor mill will start to gain speed um and then heather on top of it was starting to talk um she she started to talk to her friends and talk about some of the stuff going on at home and talking about wanting to run away um and then i guess she was she left school um, she was supposed to take a job. She had declined it, but all of a sudden, one day she just ups and disappears. And her friend says, "Hey, she actually ended up taking that job, and that's why she's gone." Um, because the kids started to worry. They started to not see Heather. They want to report it to the police, but they're like, "Oh no, 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 no! She took the job, and that's why she left." And the kids never saw Heather again. But in reality, they ended up killing Heather. Now. They say that they didn't want to kill Heather, but because she was talking and because it started to become a risk to the family, they did end up murdering Heather. Mm. And at first, they told the kids that she ran away, but later on, you see them using it and saying things to the kids like, oh, if you act up, you're going to end up in the under the porch like Heather. The first step to keeping abuse going is to make sure that there's isolation and then there's fear. Like, what does it look like? And then the other thing that the, the emotional toll that it takes, people don't realize is that there's a, when you're a kid, there's an uncertainty to the other side of things. The, the reason we cling to our parents is because they're what we know. Right. And so if you threaten a kid with like something happens to us, you know, if you like, what is, what's the, what's the, what's the alternative? If they've already told you that strangers are worse. You know, like, do you stick with the devil you know or the devil you don't know? And so, like, there's, for kids, it's it's a tough place to be in where a lot of us hear these stories and they're like, well, if it was me, I would have told my guidance counselor right away. And that's cool that you're so do- you're so close with your guidance counselor, but the truth is, you're not those kids. You haven't lived in this since in you re- were born. <laughs> you know? And then in reality, there's always a gap. So once you report something, there's an investigation. And during that investigation, they don't always take you out of the setting. No. So when people start to come knock on doors, you know, it puts you even at more risk because now the parents know that something is going on and you're in that same setting. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's word of mouth, because usually for you to be removed, there needs to be something, some kind of physical evidence bruises and if there isn't exactly and if there isn't then they're going by word so the investigation may have you stay there until it's over so it's not hard it's very hard for kids to open their mouth but heather was Mm. and that put the fear in them 
So, you know, after Heather's disappearance, some time goes by. Um, and now we're in May 1992. And this is really what does the family in. Um, they start to target Louise. Louise is 13 at the time. Now, we're talking 92, so there's some information about child abuse coming in. It's not the 70s, it's not as crazy. Um, several of the siblings have gone, left the house, you know, they're older. Um, so as, so Fred asks Louise to come downstairs, um, to one of the rooms. Rose wasn't home. Um, and Rose knew about the other times for the other children, but Rose wasn't home the first time this happened with Louise and asked her to come downstairs. I believe they went into Rose's room and he raped and sodomized her. Louise was absolutely upset, told her mother what happened, and Rose's response was, oh well, you were asking for it. That was really the beginning for Louise. Louise, again, becomes Fred's next target. He rapes her. He films these um, instances with Louise, but she gets the courage to confide in a friend, and the friend tells you know the parents what happened and there was an immediate response and the mother of the friend actually reported this anonymously so they don't even know who reported them um which i think was beneficial for louise because if she hadn't disclosed you would know where it was coming from exactly but this is where yeah this is where the police start to you know go into the house and search the house and they go in saying oh well there was some stolen property we just want to see if it's here and they find the sexual paraphernalia they did not find any video of fred specifically raping his daughter but she just um make a full statement to a police officer describing the actions um, there was a medical exam, and there was evidence for medical, for physical and um, sexual abuse at this point. Um, then her I, older siblings start to talk to the police. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was. was it I think it was Anne Marie. Yeah, yeah Anne Marie begins to speak to the police and talk about her experiences in the house. Um, the children talk about, you know how. You know, they're going to end up like their sisters buried underneath the patio, sister buried underneath the patio. They start to disclose stuff and a full scale investigation starts to happen. Because we don't want to forget that Heather wasn't of age yet. And now that there are all these things happening, right, social services, because it existed since the 90s, you know, was asking like, okay, so where is Heather? Like, what? where is this young girl? Because right now they have the idea that she's dead but mom is saying we don't know where she is oh she you know she took this job she's gone and so like there's all this pressure now to continue to you know we tell kids like don't lie because if you lie you gotta tell another lie and another lie and another lie and another lie and at some point someone's gonna find the truth right and that's that's what kind of happens i mean Anne marie herself starts to say hey i haven't seen my mom and my half sister in a while as well well like they went missing and I haven't seen them. So starts stuff to be starts stuff to crack. And what ended up happening is basically at one point the children decide not to not to testify in court. So of course they get these charges, Rose and 
and Fred and the children decide not to testify. Um, because fear, right? Um, doesn't guarantee anything. You have to face your abuser. The abuser is your father, so even more fearful. So they retract everything, all the statements, right? I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, there's still younger siblings in the house. You right, know, and you, right. And, and they said that. They said yeah. that they were afraid of what's going to happen to the younger siblings in the house. Um, although, at some point, they get so concerned, you know, social services, they do remove mm-hmm. all the children um, from the home. Um, and the kids all end up in foster care. Um but still, some of the so Stephen is still there. Um, I don't know if I think Amory is out of the house, but I believe Louise is still at the home as well. And you know they start really getting concerned about about Heather. So when they hear about this buried underneath the patio, initially the police are like laughing about it. They're not taking it seriously. They're like, oh come on, like. But then they're realizing, okay, stuff is really happening. What if? I forgot the name of the detective, but one of the detectives was like, what if they're actually telling the truth? So now they're like full on investigation and Fred and Rose are freaking out at this point. They're, Fred is talking about leaving the house to Steven um, and Anne and Anne Marie and, and stuff like that. They're, they're freaking out. They're preparing for the worst. And what they did was have Fred turn himself in and admit to these crimes. And he said Rose had nothing to do with it, did not know any of it went on. And that's how it started. Um, so I think, you know, in looking at the investigation, piece by piece, he starts to say, you know, the, the cops are looking at the, the, the digging up the dirt, looking in the garden, looking at different places. They're not finding the body. They have a guy stationed outside of the house to watch the, the, the place at all times. Um, they were worried that they were going to end up moving Heather's body specifically because at the time, the police officers only knew about Heather. Father admitted to Heather's murder. But as he's in holding, he's admitting to more murders, gave them the exact location of Heather's body. They did end up finding Heather's body. But then they, what made him con- like confess to the rest of the murders is that they found an extra thigh bone that wasn't supposed to be there. They're like, where is this extra piece coming from? Here's all of Heather's pieces. Where is this extra piece coming from? And that's what made Fred start talking. Again, they're still going around acting like Rose wasn't a part of this. Like, thing, she's not a part, and it's just Fred talking. While Rose is yet to actually be arrested, Fred is being pressured into sharing. And so what they start understanding is that it's not that she's not in the garden. That they were digging in the wrong section of the garden to find Heather's remains. And so what ends up happening is they, they shift a different section after Fred accompanies them to the excavation site and says, okay, like this is where she's buried. And they start digging and eventually they find a thigh bone, you know, in the same place where originally Fred said that there was nothing in, that you don't have to go over there. And they continue, they continue removing soil and dirt and, you know, whatever else is in their garden. And then they start finding other bones. And then they see that there is a, a bunch of, of remains. There's even a, there's even a bag that is tied pretty tight. And they find in this bag, once it gets back to what we would call like a medical examiner's office, they see 
that all of these bones and through dental records that this is in fact Heather's remains. And so the the gig is up at this point, right? There's no way of no way of hiding what at least one murder is definitely on their on their heads now. And so we see that the rest of it starts to unravel. They start finding more sets of human remains, you know, in the garden. So they again, they are caught. There's no more the kids are removed from the home and we see again their whole little abusive dark violent world has come tumbling down all around them. So while in court and all this is going on and going to trial, um, Fred starts to, you know, approach his wife who's there present in court. And every time he tries to approach her, she like winces and like pulls away from him. Um, he's writing letters to her in jail. She's not answering. All of this makes him really depressed. Um, he finally withdrew some of the confession stuff where he says he acted alone and said that his wife was really the main person in all the murders, including uh, Anne McFall, who was his first wife. It was really, you know, Rose that did that and murdered her. Because, you know, since then, they realize Anne McFall and the um, stepdaughter have been murdered as well. And initially, Fred was taking the fall. But when she started resisting him, she was, he was, you know, upset. And so he said that Rose was a part of it. And, you know, that initiated even more stuff and, you know, more to her arrest. Um, and to this day, she pleads guilty. She's serving time, I believe, life. Um, but she always says to this day that she's guilt- not guilty of any of this stuff. Meanwhile, you know, Fred, on the other hand, he got so depressed. Like, they had him on suicide watch a couple of times in jail. Um, one of the times that, you know, he was on suicide watch, they kind of laxed it back. They thought he was getting better. Um, so they stopped having supervision for him and... He took the opportunity to write a suicide note and kill himself by wrapping um, a blanket around his neck that he stole from the laundry. And he ended up killing himself in um, January 1995. So he's no longer around, but Rose is still in jail and she still says that she is not guilty. And everything has consequences and there are and there are still you know they've killed at least 12 people and 12 families who who had to deal with not knowing what was going on again there are some families who if their kids disappeared it was just all right you know they went is they went you know backpacking they crossed the you know across the pond to go to america and follow music band like things happened and they don't know so ultimately um, once they were digging up the garden, they found other bodies, right? They found Shirley Ann Robinson and Allison Chambers, you know, and then they found uh, three singing Thaler. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get her name wrong. Shirley Hubbard was found in the basement. Uh, Lucy Par- uh, Partington was found in the basement, uh, along with Juanita Motlin, the golf Caroline Cooper. They were found in the basement. A few pieces were found in the bathroom. Um, Catherine West was uh, discovered at a field, letterbox field. Um, and then I do believe that Charmaine West was found under the kitchen floor at their old home. And then a 12th body uh, was found. It was Ann McFall, 
uh, in June and she was pregnant. Remember this, um, at finger post field, uh, they had used some new technology, like the ground penetrating technology that had really become along to look for these bodies in the places that, that were identified as past, you know, residences or stomping grounds for the West. Um, and as far as consequences long-term, when we talk about, um, when we talk about children and the effects of trauma and extreme trauma, we know that Stephen, um, not too long ago, about 20 years ago, when he was th- about 32, 33 years old, um, was arrested for, for sex with an underage girl, right? And did time in jail. We know that one of their, uh, kids, Barry, struggled with addiction for his entire adult life and ultimately, uh, overdosed, uh, I believe back in 2020. Uh, so there are, there are these kids who are now living with the weight in, in pain of their parents' actions and these families who have gone on knowing that there's all this untapped and un, unseen, uh, potential and love and experiences with their, with the people they cared about that is no longer possible. So that is Fred and Rose West. Uh, wow. So, I, I mean, it's really a, a story, a sad story from beginning to end. Really, absolutely. like, it was just disgusting, and it, I, I don't know. It really was trauma after trauma after trauma, and just escalation after escalation after escalation. Yeah, and like we said, the 1970s did not have the services needed to even try to help these people, I feel, through any of their trauma. No, and again, even now, even when you have the when you have the, the resources and, and the technology and the science and the research behind things, it's, it's still hard. Like some of these things are ingrained again, like we talk about Barry, like some of these things are things that you have to, it's hard to just get experiences out of your head. And I think a lot of times when people think of trauma, because the internet has taken words like trauma and depression and anxiety and use them to cover a whole litany of things. And like, oh, I'm traumatized from that. And the truth is you could be, but there are levels of trauma and trauma happens like poverty is traumatizing, but it's not traumatizing always in the way of the symptoms or consequences of poverty where people are stealing, robbing, killing, assaulting. Those are like moments, those are traumatizing experiences and not just lived experiences where, you know, these aren't things that you go to therapy and they're over with. No, like you go to therapy to try to find ways to cope when these feelings reassert themselves over and over. And sometimes it is difficult to turn those things off. They have lasting effects, yeah. But we're done and we can look forward to season two um, of What Did You Do starting February 7th. You'll see us on the socials. Where can they find you, D? if they went looking? They can find me nowhere. You know, I'm never prepared for this part, but this time I brought up my Instagram (laughs) So you you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at underscore D, that's D-E-E, underscore Isa, that's I-S-A, like Isa Ray, because that is, yeah, a name, and I have it. <laughs> so you can find me there. Yeah, find me on Instagram. I, I'm on Twitter, but my Twitter is protected, you know, because life. My Twitter uh, is also protected, but I, I might I'll let fo- you I'll, in. I might I'll accept the follower request, yeah. Like... <laughs> I ran like I ran for office and I work in a school, so like my, my Instagram is the only thing I let my my students see, and they are always judging me no matter what I post, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me at 
Charnel B. It's my first name, last initial on Twitter and on Instagram. I talk a lot um, on the internet. So if you have questions, thoughts, feelings, concerns, critiques, feel free to list them there. You can find the show at What Did You Do Pod on both Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, hit us up there. Uh, the show is always available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. I don't want to forget about my Facebook uh, group. Sorry to cut you off. Our um, Facebook the, group? Our Facebook group. Oh, I what did you, you crew? Your, I was like, what? <laughs> the What Did You Crew, which is still there, and I still pay attention, although sometimes I may not answer, but I'd love to see you guys chat on that. I and answer. <laughs> my anxiety because does I care. not permit me wanting to. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's not about caring, I'm, guys. I read it. I'm I just lonely, don't know what to say. So I like, overthink about what I say, and then I say nothing. <laughs> Oh, no, I just say stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But go check us out there. We're so happy to be back. And in two weeks, we'll see you again. So enjoy this episode. Uh, Again, talk to us. And if you have episode ideas, Um, we've got a lot of things already planned out. But who knows what the future holds? Maybe if we decide uh, something you've brought to us is more exciting than what we were going to do, we might think about switching some things out. So take care of yourselves. What do we used to say? I think it's keep your hands clean. Yeah, keep your hands clean and, you know, talk to somebody. Go to yes. therapy. Therapy is amazing. Tell your, friends, tell your friends about what you're feeling. I don't care what it is. Like, a lot of times we're like, well, if I say this, people are going to think I'm crazy. Or if I'm saying this, people are going to think I'm, I'm, I'm gross. Or I'm like, the more you keep things in, it's the secrets that make you sick. Right? So, oh, ooh, yes. that was the other one. That's the other one. Right. And Hashtag so the more, taglines. Right. So, the more you keep things in, the more things are going to fester, the more you have to hide. Instead of being able to be up front and saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this and I really need someone to look out for me. So let people look out for you. So take care, make good choices, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.